Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 87. After Hours with Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season we went through the Screwtape Letters, but we have finished that book and we are in the, call it the post-season, the in-between, season four and season five, where we uh, throw in some more interviews that we had an opportunity to take advantage of in this season. Uh, We went through the Silver Chair, uh, our annual Narnia book. And so we are in that stage of the podcast. And so today is an after-hours interview. I'm recording this introduction actually outside of the interview. I only had a, a tight period of time to do the interview. So when I sat down with Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio, we just jumped right into it. And so I'm recording this after the fact. And so I will give the bio and a little bit of a background of him and also this conversation ahead of time. And so Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio, also known as Dr. Italy, holds an MA and a PhD in historical theology from Catholic University of America and is known for delivering profound Catholic truths in understandable and relevant terms. In addition to teaching for CDU, Dr. D'Ambrosio is a professor at the International Catholic University. He has also taught pastoral theology at Ave Maria University and various theology courses at the University of Dallas and Loyola College in Baltimore. Dr. D'Ambrosio is the director of Crossroads and has been repeatedly called upon to serve as an expert commentator on Fox News' Geraldo Rivera at Large and the O'Reilly Factor. His writing has been published in numerous Catholic publications by our Sunday Visitor and Catholic News Service's syndicated column, Faith Alive. He's written many popular books, including Exploring the Catholic Church, Guide to the Passion, and the book we'll be discussing today, When the Church Was Young. And normally, I would welcome him right now, but that will be coming in a second. Instead, I'm going to use this time here real quick to do a bit of an introduction on this episode. This We don't usually do this, but... This episode is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and I will actually share a little bit about that in the beginning of the episode when he is on, and so I won't rehash that here, but the early church fathers played a very pivotal role in my spiritual journey in selecting the house, the denomination I wanted to be a part of after I'd finished uh, mere Christianity. And so the early church fathers, just a little bit of a background, there's different groups, there's different segments, there's different time periods, there's no universal definition. There's like the apostolic fathers that are very close to the apostles. And some will even talk about uh, Clement uh, potentially, most likely sat at the foot of the apostle John, who wrote the gospel of John, the beloved disciple. At least at a minimum, he was in the town as a child growing up that the apostle John was in. And so if he wasn't sitting at the foot, he was probably very close to people that were. And then as you you go on, there's other early church fathers that were very close to the apostles. And so the writings, in my view, place some, uh, I place some weight on them as learning of what did the early church look like? What were some of the doctrinal issues? What were some of the heresies that were they were fighting? How did they live out their faith? That was a really big question to me. It's one thing to be like, all right, I'm in love with the Lord and I believe in him and the resurrection and what that means for me, but what does that look like? And so I was very curious, a lot of those questions. And so it starts there with the apostolic fathers. It continues for many, many centuries. And it really was the formation of church doctrine in understanding it, because it's not like we were just given, here's everything you believe. It's how do you bring this into time, into modern times? Well, 
every century after Christ was a new modern time. So I don't mean today, uh, but I mean the modern times as they progressed. And so that's what we're going to be talking about, a person who is an expert on this, who has studied this, who's now written books on this, and you're going to hear that in here. The other thing I'd like to mention before we dive into this is just being very transparent up front. We attempt to be as ecumenical as possible on this podcast because the number one thing is the love of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, and different denominations have different truths, but in many senses, there's there's a great core overlap. Um, yes, do I think that there's some that might be closer or further from it? Yes, uh, but those are more about helping you encounter Christ. And for me, uh, I have landed through a very intentional search into the Catholic Church. And interestingly enough, the early church fathers were a pivotal role in that journey. And Dr. D'Ambrosio also comes from the Catholic denomination. So this will be coming from that perspective. And so for some individuals, I said it up front, we know probably half of our listener base is non-Catholic. And uh, we're so grateful for that. And Lewis was high Anglican. He wasn't Catholic. And so it's not surprising. But I wanted to just state that up front uh, as just a a note to know going into this. And some things will come from a very Catholic perspective. And uh, if you're someone that might get turned off by that, just challenge you to have an open mind, open heart, and just receive this and maybe um, receive some of the truth you do. And you can disagree with stuff that we say. By no means um, does everything we say is necessarily uh, correct. And so um, this is just meant to really give you a taste of it from our perspective, but you can dive into early church fathers yourself. So I really wanted to state that here in this introduction and would love feedback and emails. So you can, you can contact us at contact at pinesujack.com. We read every single one of those emails, attempt to reply to them all. You can go to our Twitter, uh, which is Pines with Jack. You can go to our Instagram page. You can DM us in any of those. We are very open. We love to be able to have conversations. So definitely please do do that. Now, let me progress a little bit forward. We still do have a quote of the week, which I actually, I do believe answers a little bit the early church fathers. And this comes from his book. The era of the church fathers begins where the original eyewitnesses leave off and carries us through the period of the first seven great universal or ecumenical councils that hammered out the two most central issues in the Christian faith, how one God could have conceived of as three distinct persons and how Jesus could have been both God and man. Thus, these teachers helped bring Christianity out of its diapers and into adulthood. I chose that because... One, I actually thought it explains the early church fathers, or at least an aspect of what you can get from them, some of those doctrinal formations. But no, you can also get examples of a beautiful lives lived, people who died for their faith. Uh, and so it's definitely not, the only reason you read them is not just for learning doctrinal issues. There's so many other reasons to read the early church fathers. Drink of the week, I'm drinking Spindrift. It was, or I was drinking Spindrift. I also am too, as I record this. It was during the daytime. It was a noon recording. We had a lunch hour recording, so neither of us had any fancy drink. And for our Patreon toast, there's no specific Patreon, but what I just want to toast to is all of our supporters that are on the Slack community and specifically want to toast the ones that I've had video calls with. Every one of you guys has been a blessing and I'm always amazed. We just had another one. Shout out to Shane. You guys just honestly inspire me. It's one of the most humbling things that you choose to listen to David and I every single week because every time I chat with you, I feel, I don't know if this is the right word because it's not about feeling more or less, but I feel less than you guys. I just feel so humbled when I'm in your guys' presence of your passion for the Lord, your passion for Lewis, your love of truth, and it inspires me. And so this toast is for every single one of you guys that has 
uh, how we've had a chance to interact with, communicate with, and have just touched and made this ministry so much more and made this a community and not just David and I talking to strangers. And so this toast is for all of you guys. Cheers. Now, without further ado, we're going to jump into the episode and you're going to now hear me just welcome Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio, and we're just going to be jumping into the episode. So I hope you guys enjoy. Dr. D'Ambrosio, welcome to Pints with Jack. It is wonderful to be with you, Matt, and it's great to be with Jack, uh, at least virtually here. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish I had a pint in front of me. I, I don't uh, at this very moment. It's a little early for a pint, but it's great being with you. Uh, well, I have been particularly excited to have you on for a number of reasons, but while C.S. Lewis, and this is C.S. Lewis podcast typically, played an instrumental role in my conversion to Christianity when I was wrestling with atheism, it was the early church fathers back in maybe 2014, 2015, that brought me back to Catholicism. It was reading Polycarp, Irenaeus, Ignatius of Antioch, and Clement that really played an instrumental role. And then my podcast co-host had mentioned your book, I want to say maybe a year ago, and it somewhat became a thing on the podcast where we had listeners uh, uh, send emails in and say, hey, got that book, really enjoying it, really liking it. And then I actually... Did a do a Bible study with a group of guys and said, let's take a, about a one month hiatus. We we read like the first third of your book together to really get some context around some of the New Testament writings. And all of a sudden, my co-host David uh, texted me and said, Doctor D'Ambrosio has agreed to come onto the show. And I was like, No way! I I call interviewing him. And so I have been looking forward to this because of just the role that the early church fathers have played in my journey, and to be able to share this with our listeners. So genuinely, thank you for coming on. You're most welcome. And the early church fathers had a huge impact on my formation. Um, I did not leave the church, but I, I was um, a Sunday Catholic and was enamored with the, the glory of rock and roll. I was a, a professional rock musician very early in my life. No <laughs> and, way. Yeah, yeah. So um, at, at age 16, I, I, I fall in love with Christ in a new way and uh, start seeking to grow. And, and I found a Trappist monk spiritual director who told me I had to do the Liturgy of the Hours, which I thought was only for priests and was impossible. And, you know, so it had been translated into English by the time I was 16. And it had been, it was in the process of being revised after the Second Vatican Council. But one of the things that's amazing about the Liturgy of the Hours is there's something called the Office of Readings. I don't know if many of you guys listening have ever explored the Liturgy of the Hours. But I'll just tell you that if you really want to get immersed in Catholic tradition and, cu and culture, and um, really uh, Catholic culture is biblical culture, you, you get into the Liturgy of the Hours and you end up clothing your life and your day in prayer. You, you, you begin living the Psalms. And the Office of Readings is a short office. Eh, it's about 15 minutes it takes to do it. It's one long Psalm. And there's a page from scripture, not just a little paragraph, but a, a page. And then there is a commentary by one of the church fathers. So the best selections of the entire history of the church, the fathers mostly, and then a few later saints here and there, these selections are already picked out by the church. And so I started doing this and it just caused me to fall in love with the church, with the fathers, and then it led me to theology. And then I ended up doing a you know PhD dissertation on the father's <laughs> interpretation of scripture. You know, that's a long ways from rock and roll, I'll tell you that. But um, <laughs> it started by praying the fathers, not so much just like reading them intellectually, but Lexio Divina 
is taking uh, something from uh, the liturgy of the hours or or the mass and and really pondering it as a spirit lights it up as you read it in the course of your regular prayer, you take it aside and, and mull over it, you know? So the fathers really are spiritual writers more than anything else. Of course, they're theologians, but, um, you know, I, I, you can get a lot out of them spiritually by, by just taking them and meditating slowly on them prayerfully. Oh, that was very well said in a good pitch, because that was partly also why I wanted to have you on this podcast is because I really <laughs> try to encourage anyone I come across. And we have very diverse listener base because C.S. Lewis is very ecumenical. We have um, uh, many Catholics, we have many non-Catholics, and I just find church history and the church fathers so uh, impactful. So I'm really glad you just gave a great pitch for people to dive in and to read them. Yeah. Although we should say Liturgy Hours is a great way to read them, but also his book is a great way to read them, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Which leads me to how did you end up coming to uh, write this book? Well, I was asked by a publisher because the publisher knew that um, I was a fan of the fathers and a dissertation on the fathers, and it was from Franciscan media or the servant imprint of Franciscan. And, um, the gal there, uh, who kind of knew me from, from many years ago, prior to our association through the publisher, she said, Hey, it would be an awesome thing. There really aren't a lot of good popular works on the fathers that kind of tell the story and help you make sense of who they were. And I said, I'd love to do that. So that that's really the idea. Um, the the book it starts with some of the earlier fathers, and it it doesn't it can't include everybody. It's only a three hundred page book. I want to do two volumes. They said no, no. So that's that's what it's like working with a publisher. You know, uh, they have certain control over things. But anyway, um, it it kind of keeps it shows the connection between the fathers. It shows really a little bit of the story of the rediscovery of the fathers, because really we lost a lot of the fathers of the church um, for many, many years from the time that uh, really people in in the West started to forget Greek and only know Latin. And then we had great problem with illiteracy and only monks even knew how to read Latin. But anyway, we kind of lost touch with a lot of the early fathers from the East, especially. And that started to come back slowly, um, really in, in the 1600s, but really big time in the 19th uh, century and the 20th century, great rediscoveries of things. So I try to get a little bit of that in there because it's kind of traumatic, you know, I mean, Hey, this is rediscovery of our heritage and it impacts a lot of our vision as to what really it, how do you interpret the new Testament? Well, the fathers are key because they carry it on an oral tradition and a way of living the gospel and worshiping that tells us how the apostles interpreted their own writings. So they're really, really important uh, if we want to interpret scripture aright. So I think all of us, and I wrote this really to be an ecumenical work. Um, I'm Catholic. There's no doubt about that. I'm, I'm Roman Catholic. Um, I love uh, the Western tradition, but I, I also love the Eastern tradition. I've had great fellowship with Protestant brothers and sisters, both evangelical and Anglican and Lutheran. Um, so anyway, the point here is that this is our common heritage. And I, I didn't want to write it polemically, although you can't get around the fact that the early church is sacramental it's just the way it is. And the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, are central. So you can't leave that out. And I've been the, the, the only criticism I've really had on the book has been from evangelicals who are, you know, Puritan style evangelicals. They don't really want to see the sacraments. They think that's just a Catholic thing. And, you know, uh, I'm doing history here. I am not trying to uh, read in uh, later theology into the fathers. But um, 
it's just the, the way it is. You have to note that this is central. You also have to note um, that 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 there is something. Uh, re, there's a real great emphasis on grace, which is actually an evangelical rah-rah point. You know, it's it's one of the cheers of the Reformation is sola gratia, sola fide. Well, the fathers don't deny the importance of works in any way, but they certainly really emphasize the gift of salvation. So, I mean, this we can find in the Father's affirmation for the things that are truest and deepest in our own traditions, um, but we also are all challenged. And I think Catholics are challenged because you cannot find in the Fathers of the Church some sort of political Christianity uh, that just is about issues. You can't find a minimalist Catholicism, which is doing the minimum and observing, you know, canon law and the precepts of the church. And that's all, you know, they're really, really very clear that we're all called to holiness and, and that Christian walk is a radical discipleship um, adventure. And it's a journey and it's, and it's an adventure. And um, the Augustine especially, you know, talks so much about faith as a pilgrimage and as, as, as a journey, which, um, we're doing this, this interview, um, and it's around the time of the feast of Bonaventure. His whole, his great book is the journey of the mind into God. And <laughs> he's, he's very patristic, you know? So anyway, that, that's kind of like the, the point is that this book is for everybody. It challenges everybody. Everyone can find encouragement, um, nourishment and solace in it. And that's kind of the point we can go over our common heritage together. So it's great doing, doing this podcast where we may have some evangelicals, um, some, uh, some Orthodox, some, some Anglicans, as well as Roman Catholics listening along. It's great. Well, and in the two, the, the brothers that I do the Bible study with that we went through this book, we're both Protestant and loved going through it. And that's I awesome. would say like, I had read, I agree with you on that sacramental side. I had just read the the text very directly uh, in 2014, 2015, and the primary text, and I got that exact same feeling. Well, when I was going through it with your book, the one thing I didn't quite notice was exactly like you said, you can't do it minimalist. These fathers lived it to the point of some really extreme martyrdoms. And so the second time when I was reading the fathers, except via your book this time, rather than the primary text, I was like, wow, these... They died for this. This was their everything. This wasn't, oh, I'm going through the motions. I'm doing this. I'm participating in these sacraments. And I go back to my daily life. It was like, this was their everything. And it was very moving to me. I mean, there's was, there was various moments where I was yeah. actually brought to tears by some of the excerpts that you put in there. And it was profound. That's awesome. And, you know, even the ones who weren't martyred suffered a lot. Like the, the exiles of Athanasius just are amazing. You yes. know, the, the number of times he's exiled, he's on the land, he's running from the government. And we find that also with, with others, uh, because the government, you know, the Christian government of the, of the Christianized Roman empire for a long time after Constantine was very pro Aryan. And so the bishops who stood up for the truth of Christ's full divinity, and then later Christ's full humanity, you know, there were always political interests trying to use religion to unite the empire or to further imperial ends. And constantly the fathers were getting, like John Chrysostom, exiled. And, and really, he is a martyr because he died because of the hardships of exile. Um, you have Augustine living in a town where the majority of Christians were schismatic Donatists. And the Donatists were really strident 
kind of, you know, they, they were really harsh and, and there was violence going on against Catholics or Dante's gangs that used to jump people. Uh, you know, here's Augustine. He probably has a flock. It's estimated that his flock of Catholics were in this town. So his diocese is a town and it's about 800 souls. Can you imagine that? Wow. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. But but Augustine is fighting all the battles from this little spot. He's fighting all the battles of the age against Pelagianism, which makes the really Christianity into self-help a sort of religion, you know, God helps those who help themselves kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's fighting those guys on the one hand, he's fighting uh, those on the other who are dualists who think that matter is evil. You know, he's fighting the Donatists who say that the, they're the one true church. I mean, it's just, he's, and he's dying. Uh, like most people know about Augustine's conversion, but his whole life as, as a pastor, I try to bring some of that into this book his mentoring of his friends around his table, people coming to visit him, uh, his forbidding of gossip and, and trash talking at his table and actually inscribing that into the table. Um, you know, his, him laying while the vandals are attacking and besieging his town. So you got Aryan barbarians. They, they were Aryan Christians, but they're, they're thoroughly <laughs> barbarians and they are circling the town and he is dying and he has the penitential psalms being chanted around him as this, you know, as there are flames and catapults going on and all this stuff. I mean, this is, some of this stuff is pretty dramatic. And, and so uh, I'm really glad to bring out a little bit of color and context for the writings of these amazing men. And you just alluded to the, the third thing I really got from it was the the attack on doctrine, how much we take for granted some of the core tenets that we believe today and not realizing it was these early church fathers that fought for it. And you, you, you gave a nice highlight of a number of the different heresies that were coming up that actually gained some traction and took a lot of strength to go against. And I personally took out of this today, there's plenty of attacks on uh, Christian values, not our faith. And, and how do we go about approaching that? And how do we evangelize witness, defend truth, but not do it in a way that's necessarily competitive, but sometimes you read these books, you're like, you kind of do have to be a little bit competitive because we have to defend truth. And so this is really powerful to read these people doing it. Yeah. When you see things clearly, a lot of times, a lot of us say, yeah, it's, you know, let the person have their illusions, uh, you know, let them have their, okay, well, th th that's fine. But sometimes these illusions, especially when they're broadcast or when they're being pushed by the government could really destroy people's salvation. And that's the insight of the fathers. To deny Jesus' divinity is against truth, but it also undermines our salvation because that means our salvation doesn't depend on God. If he's not God, only God could save. And the same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. You know, he's our sanctifier. Christian life isn't just about going to heaven when you die and God's mercy wiping the slate clean in heaven love books. It's really about regeneration. It's about transformation, beginning now to share in the holiness of God. That can only be done by God. If the Holy Spirit is not God, he can't sanctify us. So the, they had these like clear things. Our salvation is imperiled if we buy into this nonsense. <laughs> and that's why they fought it stridently. And I think, you know, there's a time to fight and there's a time uh, to to coexist. And there's a, you know, there's a time to tolerate the, you know, it's like Ecclesiastes and they, but they had, they had, they are the ones who had to discern, Hey, this is crucial. This is critical. We, we can't let this slide. We got to fight for this. And I think we can learn from that. 
well, in one of the central teachings that I had learned from Lewis, but then realized later that, well, one, the Catholic Church has taught it for a significant amount of time, and it goes back to church history, even to the second century and first century. But Lewis said, the Son of God became man so men could become sons of God. That idea of the divine life, theosis, divinization. And then I realized he gets that from St. Athanasius, from your book. And then I realized St. Irenaeus actually said something not quite as quippy like that, but was also very similar. And that teaching was so instrumental in my own journey. Because when you recognize yeah. Christ's divinity, and like First Peter says, we can partake in the divine life, and right. how that transforms in us. If, if Christ wasn't divine, fully divine, or if he wasn't fully human, that theology goes away. And I thought that was one of the most profound theological truths, because it it means as long as I'm accepting Christ within me, and in, in, in our denominational background, receiving the Eucharist, receiving the sacraments where they transmit this divine life, I'm not earning anything. I'm showing up and allowing him to transform me from the inside out. And that, to me, is such a beautiful message. Absolutely. And the the Pauline teaching of the church as a body of Christ is something the fathers really get. And, you know, a lot of times today, if if you really check your mentality, you tend to identify the church with the officers of the church and the hierarchy. Um and and this is something that is not ancient. Uh, you know, the church never fought. The fathers, although many of them were bishops, did not think of the church as the bishops. Uh, it, the church has an institutional dimension. It has pastors, and uh, they govern. But the church is a body. It's a mystical body where we're all members of one another. And um, for that reason, you know, we, we actually die in baptism. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're now members of his body. So the good deeds that are done by us after baptism are really Christ in us. Uh, so we can't take credit for them. They have merit uh, in God's um, in God's dispensation, but it's relative merit. And probably a better way to think about it is the good deeds we do are fruit. So uh, we're really, as long as we're attached to the vine and the sap of the Holy Spirit's flowing through us, we can bear fruit, should bear fruit. Um, obviously bad, if, if there's no fruit, it means that you're not really attached or there's no sap in the vine. And so you're a dead branch and you're cut off John 15. So that's the way the fathers looked at good deeds. They were absolutely critical. And yes, we, we are, we have free will. We have to cooperate with God's work in us. But like you said, it's really yielding and letting the spirit work in us, uh, letting Christ work through us who are members of his body. Um, and that's, that's really the way they would look at it. Mm-hmm. I love this. We've indirectly answered a lot of questions, which is fantastic. I love when it just flows like that. (laughs) So let me take a a little bit of a step back here. And now that listeners are probably like, wow, there's a lot in here with church history and church fathers. Let me start with this question. How much emphasis should be placed on the writings of the early fathers and versus scripture as we're coming up with doctrinal issues, we're reading certain things in the first century, second century, third century? How much emphasis do you think should be placed on that? Or maybe another way to answer that is the relationship between fathers and scriptures as we think through what we believe. All right. Well, first and foremost, there's nothing that equals scripture because scripture is the inspired word of God. We don't use that for any in the Catholic tradition, in the Orthodox tradition, in in Protestant traditions. You know, uh, no matter whose writings we value, even if we believe that ecumenical councils issue um, doctrinal statements that are infallible. 
which Orthodox would believe and, and we would believe. And I think, um, you know, perhaps some Protestants would believe that as well of the earliest councils that, that came up with the creeds. M- maybe you do, uh, maybe not. Um, Luther, you know, Luther's cry, sola scriptura, was not throw out all authority but scripture. It was that only scripture has ultimate authority or infallible authority. So that that's what Luther had to say. And I think if people, the Protestants recovered, you know, a, a, a little bit more of, of, of Luther, they'd actually, we'd actually be closer together in, in many respects. But let me just say that the scriptures are number one because they are the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we pray over them uh, and we read them in in our assembly in in the Eucharist. We stand when the gospel is read, and I think Orthodox do that as well, and 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 perhaps some Protestants. Uh, so so the point is, Scripture is unique. However, Scripture didn't exist. It, the New Testament didn't exist for as we have it now until probably collected all together, probably the the, the mid second century or or maybe early second century. But we're talking a hundred at least a hundred years where Christians didn't have the whole New Testament. So they relied really on apostolic preaching and that being passed on in worship, being passed on in life. And uh, that context that is called tradition with a capital T. It's a whole process of passing on everything that the Lord gave us. And that's, you know, that's really important. That's the native habitat of scripture. So you have, you need that in order to interpret scripture rightly. You don't understand a lion in a zoo, in a cage, you understand a lion looking at a lion in the Savannah of Africa, you know, and how they operate. And, and so th- that's kind of like a, a little analogy I like to use for tradition. Now, the fathers are the primary conduits of that for us in writings, and that's why they're so important. These guys are close to the apostolic tradition, either they're they're late first century like Clement or, or second through the eighth century, but they're still really close. So their test where they agree, it really helps us to say that is tradition with a capital T that goes back to Christ and the apostles. So they, they're the ones actually who identified the apostolic scriptures and discriminated those from other things that had names like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that they said, nah, these are bogus. And they knew they were bogus for a number of reasons. But but the point is, the fathers help us identify the canon. So I would say they're pretty important to help us identify the proper interpretation of that canon and what's in it. Um, so the fathers are indispensable. Now, in the Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican traditions, you know, we value later theologians and uh, we Catholics have the doctors of the church who include some of the fathers, and there's some like Thomas Aquinas afterwards. But the fathers have preeminent authority because their testim- they give testimony to this ancient apostolic tradition. So, you know, like the Office of Readings, we actually, in worship, will read selections from the fathers uh, to a much greater degree than we read selections from anything else other than the scriptures. Again, secondary to scriptures, but after scriptures, the most important uh, testimonies to faith that we have uh, as, as a Christian community. And, and the Second Vatican Council saw that the key to renewal was going back and recovering the fathers. And it was also the key to ecumenical uh, progress because we have the fathers in common. This is before the great splits between East and West, Protestant and Catholic. So if we study the scriptures and the fathers together, we're going to come a lot closer together as a people, you know, you know, as a body of Christ. And you had mentioned some of them were very close to the apostles. Which ones of the fathers do we believe or we know with some decent confidence that were either studying under the apostles or were, were incredibly close? 
we call those the apostolic fathers. That's why we call them the apostolic fathers, because they're immediately after or close to that apostolic age. When I say immediately after, you know, we don't know how long all the apostles lived. Uh, Peter and Paul, pretty sure they died in, in, in the persecution of Nero, 64 to 68 uh, AD. Clement, one of the first writers, may have sat at the feet of the apostles when he was young. Clement wrote probably around 95 AD that John is reputed to have lived, John, the beloved disciple, son of Zebedee, was reputed to have lived into the 90s. So many look at John's gospel. It's coming from about the same time as Clement's letter. So Clement is pretty important. And we have the Didache. The material there was collected by a later editor, second, early second century probably. But the material probably goes back to first century. So, you know, it, it, it's giving testimony to first century Christianity. Um, so those guys are important. And so is, you know, think about Ignatius of Antioch. Peter and Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. So Ignatius is only one bishop away from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. He's the second successor of those guys. And that's pretty amazing in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, pedigree. So, you know, Ignatius is amazingly important, and he's a good example. We had his letters, but they were interpolated, and they were, they were therefore, there was some stuff in him that seemed to be coming from a later era. And it, just really the science of, of what we call philology, being able to discriminate words that are, you know, not, uh, that be able to take a document and say these words were added later because they come from a later era. That these words hang together stylistically. They come from. They match this era. You know, like that. That's a science that we didn't have. Um, it's until you know the last few hundred years. So anyway, Ignatius was finally uh, really purified, and critical texts of his letters were accepted as authentic by the majority of people out there. But that's only recently. That's nineteenth, twentieth century stuff. You know. So anyway, finding Ignatius, the Didache was only discovered in the 1890s, finding that Hippolytus, he's not an apostolic father, but he writes a book called The Apostolic Tradition. And it's all about this is the kind of worship life and that the, the apostles passed on to us. And he describes the liturgy around the year 200. Well, it's amazing. I mean, everything from ordination to baptism to Eucharist to daily prayer. I mean, it's an amazing thing uh, that is given to us and called the apostolic tradition. So anyway, these things from uh, second century, these are pretty important things um, for us in in terms of, you know, very, very close to the the apostles and the the first Christians. Well, that actually leads beautifully into my next question of what, what, did the earliest worship look like that we have records of? What was, when we think of daily spiritual practices, daily worship, weekly worship, what did that look like in the earliest church? Well, one thing I'm just going to say is that 1 Corinthians 10 through 13, you know, when Paul, Paul is actually describing there and talking about Eucharist that has other dimensions to it that are freer flowing, but the whole thing is Eucharistic, and we we don't necessarily see that. Um, and many many Christians will look at that and look at and think about prayer meeting, but they'll forget about First Corinthians ten and eleven, where he's talking about this. All this stuff that he's talking about takes place in in Eucharistic worship. Uh, so uh, you know, first century. Um, first of all, Christians prayed all the time, and this is an important thing about about liturgy of the hours. Jews prayed it like I, I I can't believe this isn't talked about more okay but Jews prayed 
throughout the day. And if you, if Jewish men didn't pray at least twice a day with hero Israel, the Lord, our God is Lord alone. And surround that with a bunch of other prayers of praise for creation and thanks. Um, if Jews didn't pray, at least they weren't considered practicing Jews. And then there are lots of optional things where all the pious did them and that, that were way more than that minimum. But generally speaking, we're talking, if you look at Orthodox Jews today, they're not far off from the way early Christians prayed um, because they were Jews and Gentiles who were going to synagogue. The first the first Gentiles were, were, were people who were God-fearers, who believed in God, but they didn't necessarily follow the whole law. And they went to synagogue, like the, the centurion in Capernaum who built the synagogue. It's a good example. Okay, But anyway, here's my point. The, the Christian life was, punct- was multiple times a day of people praying together, morning and evening. And gradually, here our Israel, was, the Lord our God is one, was replaced with the Our Father. So here's what the Didache says. Pray at least three times a day. Pray the, the Our Father at least three times a day. Well, they did more than that, but that was like a minimum for early Christians in the first century. So Eucharist, we find in some places it's daily. Other places we find communion is daily, but Eucharist is not daily. And this is challenging for many people who who really um, have a great sense of reverence for the Eucharist. But the Eucharist was taken home, and it was tabernacled in people's homes and people would communicate on a daily basis. This is in second, third century before there were churches that had tabernacles and reservation. Okay. But it still says, please be careful. Lest a mouse eat any, a crumb of this. Don't let a crumb of this fall to the floor. So, so it was great reverence, even though lay people would take the Eucharist home um, from Sunday Eucharist and would communicate daily. So daily bread of the Our Father was understood in terms of many of the fathers explicitly of Eucharist. So that's why daily communion was a regular uh, a regular thing, at least in, in, in large parts of the church, like Rome, North Africa, many, many parts of the church. We don't have complete records. But what we do find is the early church was at the same time spontaneous. Eucharistic prayer was was generally speaking, you know, um, the exact wording varied from celebrant to celebrant. We, we see this, you know, at least up till the second, early third century. So there was spontaneity, but at the same time, there was clear sense of order in liturgical worship. We see this in Justin Martyr describing Sunday Eucharist around the year 150 in Rome to the Romans to try to show them that, no, we're not cannibals, but this is what we do. I mean, these are secret meetings, but we'll let you know what we do because there's a misconception that we eat the flesh and blood of a guy. And we, you know, no, 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 look. And it's funny, Justin tries to explain the real presence. He doesn't say this is just a symbol. He, he tries to explain how it's the real presence, but it's not cannibalism. It's pretty amazing. So anyway, um, Eucharistic worship, great prayer and praise using the Psalms, Using the great canticles that we find in Scripture, you know, Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, this is described by Paul. So we actually have a lot of description in Scripture. And then as we we look at the fathers later, we see how this is developed and organized. I mean, uh, one thing I'll say about Hippolytus, if you go and read the apostolic tradition, and there's a chapter in my book about that, the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, you see that Hippolytus expects Christians to pray all throughout the day and even to rise in the middle of the night 
when it's quiet <laughs> and praise the Lord, there's this idea that the angels never stop praising. And even when we're sleeping, they're praising. So to, to get up in the middle of the night and pray with them is kind of a cool thing to do. So uh, we find uh, an illusion of that in Psalm 119. And, and they actually did this in the Roman church, or at least uh, this is the ideal. You know, how many people actually live this? We don't know, but we just know this is the ideal of the bishop who's teaching them uh, what should be done. You know, I'm going to remember this when I wake up at 2 a.m. and I start start swearing in my head that I'm awake and I can't fall back asleep and I'm thinking about my thoughts and I'm all angry and I'm mad and I'm like, dang it, this yeah, is yeah. just. I'm going to start worshiping and giving glory no, to God. Up. Get up and pray. Don't lay in bed being frustrated. Get up and pray. <laughs> Actually, you know, that's the way I look at it is, okay, Holy Spirit's getting me up to pray. Uh, you know, so I'm going to do it. I get up and and I pray um, and spend some time in, you know, and, and I gradually, sometimes I hear some great things from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I don't, but it's still a great prayer time and I get relaxed and I go to bed after being up for however, you know, half an hour, an hour. So yeah, absolutely. To the best of your ability and your experience of being an expert on the subject, how do other denominations, um, non-Catholic, but then also non-sacramental, interpret some of these things that, to me, in fairness, kind of seemed a little bit more obvious of pointing in a certain direction or at least narrowing down the denomination I was going to be a part of? Like, How do others interpret the church fathers or maybe push back on some of the stuff that we're talking about? Yeah. Well, first, I'll just say the ignorance of the church fathers is everywhere. So you have Catholics, Orthodox you know, the Orthodox really talk about them a lot. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that individual Orthodox, um, believers, unless they're fervent have actually read the fathers. So, you know, th there's a lot of ignorance of the fathers and in the Protestant churches, except for the Anglican, the Anglican church had a rediscovery of the fathers in the 19th century. And so the Anglicans, you know, they, they, they do believe in the, the authority of tradition and they, they don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope. So the fathers are very important for them. And uh, I would say there's some excellent Anglican uh, scholars who, who have really, really dug into the fathers, which is awesome. Um, and I think evangelicals are, are, are gradually rediscovering them. And I actually know evangelicals who have not joined the Orthodox or Catholic churches in response to reading the fathers, but have um, reinvigorated uh, their their own sense of sacraments and, and Eucharist and tradition. Um, I know a, a Protestant church here, very large Bible church that is very friendly to tradition and it, you know, uses candles and, and, and gets the body involved. It's not that candles are all that impor important necessarily, but the idea of, of, of the visual, like the incarnational aspect of following Jesus, using your senses to worship, um, that is something that you find in Catholic Orthodox tradition. You find it in the fathers, you find it in Judaism. You don't necessarily find it in Puritan Christianity coming out of the Calvinist tradition, which is where most American Protestantism comes from. So there, there are people from that tradition now though, who are rediscovering the fathers. They're rediscovering an incarnational Christianity. They're rediscovering sacraments. I actually know one former Baptist pastor who's read when the church was young and he, he now leads a free church fellowship but um, he has communion every day because he believes in the power of the Eucharist. Now, we, as Catholics, you know, we, we would say, well, maybe the, the the fullness of the Eucharistic mystery can't be there unless he has ordination from, you know, through at, through through a successor of the apostles. But nonetheless, to see people coming to to to, to recognize the Eucharist as uh, more central and important, that's really 
awesome uh, in my mind. Uh, but there's so much more in the fathers than just the sacraments. Obviously, there's there's so much on grace. There's so much on discipleship. Um, the, the, you know, and I, I think that's one of the points I wanted to make that just following a doctrinal faith of believing the articles of the creed is not Patricia Christianity because the fathers were very, very strong on discipleship and holiness. And I think that's something that we all can learn from, from the fathers, uh, everything from the works of mercy to repentance, to prayer, you know, they're great mentors in the spiritual life, in the life of day-to-day following Jesus in our, you know, in, in action. Who are some of your favorite fathers? Well, Ambrose, our family is D'Ambrosio. We're named after Ambrose. My daughter, uh, just named her son, Dominic Ambrose. So Ambrose is a great, uh, is is a great, you know, people don't know enough about Ambrose. He had a lot of guts. He taught beautifully, uh, passionately on the sacraments. So he's one of our great teachers on the Holy Spirit and the sacraments in the Western tradition. But he also really shows us what a bishop is like, especially right now as we're dealing with, what do we do with prominent politicians who say they're Christian, say they're Catholic, and yet are are pushing abortion rights and public funding of abortion? Well, (laughs) we can look to Ambrose. Ambrose had the great champion of Catholic Christianity who put an end to Arianism was Theodosius. He put an end to pagan worship in the empire. So yay, yay, Theodosius. Well, Theodosius also massacred a bunch of people innocently because they had rioted and his his, the mayor of the town, his appointee was killed in this riot. So he retaliates by massacring the mob. Ambrose hears about it and says, Theodosius, until you do public penance, you will not so much as set foot in my church. If you set foot in my church, when mass is going on, I will stop. Services will stop until you leave. You will do public penance. And guess what? The emperor could have lopped his head off. Instead, the emperor did public penance in sackcloth and ashes. Wow. And was was finally reconciled, and he died on Ambrose's lap. Ambrose was sitting, praying with him as that man died. So so he saw Ambrose as a father, and Ambrose corrected him firmly, but as a son. But it was firm. You know, it was like no no compromise. You you don't have special privileges. I don't care what you've done for the church. You're not going to get away with murder. Um, and I think you know he's a great guy to me, a great guide to how bishops need to have courage in confronting power uh, in this day and age. So anyway, I love Ambrose. He's a prophet. He's a spiritual man. But uh, I also love Ignatius. How can you not love Ignatius of Antioch? And I, I would tell everybody, if you want to start reading the Fathers, the easiest thing to read are the letters of Ignatius. They're short. They're passionate. They read like Pauline letters. Um, this is a man on his way to death in the arena. You want to see what an early Christian martyr was thinking about? Um, who this is a pastor now he's giving his parting shots. It's trying to speak into the lives of seven different churches or actually six churches and one Bishop. So we got seven letters and it's just a beautiful, beautiful, you know, thing. So I, I would say, yeah, you know, check out Ambrose. Everyone checks out Augustine, check out Ambrose and check out Ignatius of Antioch. I love that. Ignatius of Antioch was the first one I read and was incredibly impactful. So glad I indirectly started in the right area. I'm curious, just one doctrinal question about the early church fathers uh, for time's sake, but I'm a little curious because Lewis, by the end of his life, really became, I think it's safe to say, high Anglican. He was going to daily communion and the sacraments became very important to him in confession. He always struggled with two teachings of the Catholic faith, 
and he was very transparent in some of his letters to some Catholic correspondents, was papal infallibility and Mary. What do some of the early church fathers say about those two topics at a high level? No, kind of deep yeah. topics, but... <laughs> well, yeah, first of all, you, you find in the early church and the fathers that Rome has a special role. And that that's important, you know, just to see that Rome did have a special role as a court of file appeal, etc. It had a very important role, its bishop in speaking into doctrinal issues and crises. Um, so that's a, that's important. The Pope that began to uh, clarify, the, the the Bishop of Rome as successor, Peter, is Leo the Great. Um, so I would say Leo is an amazing father, and, and he is awesome on the incarnation of Jesus. He, we have his homilies. Unlike Augustine, he doesn't tell us much about himself. Except his character shows forth. You see his humility, but you also see his strength. And um, it's interesting. He has a very, very strong and clear idea of the Bishop of Rome speaking with the authority of Peter. Uh, But at the same time, on his own anniversary of consecration, he doesn't preach about the dignity of the bishop or the dignity of the pope. He preaches about the common priesthood of the faithful and, and the dignity of every single Christian sharing in uh, the, the baptismal priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is amazing. So you find this, this beautiful thing in him, um, very strong and yet very humble. And you find in Gregory also, Gregory the Great, a little bit later, you find very strong emphasis on uh, the Pope uh, as, as, as important teacher. But at the same time, he calls himself, his favorite title is servant of the servants of God. So what you find is a very strong papacy. Now, you don't find any clear teaching on infallibility, except that everyone looked to Rome as a final judge in legal, juridical issues, but also in doctrinal issues. And uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, At the Council of Chalcedon, Pope Leo wrote a letter, and that letter was a magnificent statement of Christ's full humanity and full divinity. And when it was read out, because the popes didn't attend, it's always it's tradition they don't attend an ecumenical council, but they send legates always. So anyway, when this letter was read over in the East in Chalcedon, an Eastern bishop got up and said, Peter has spoken through the mouth of Leo. Now, that is really the foundation of the idea of papal infallibility. Um, so it's implicit there. It's implicit in Matthew 16. Now, the, the important thing is, in Matthew 16, Peter speaks when everyone else is afraid to speak and he speaks out truth. And Jesus says, the father reveals to you, it didn't come from you. Then a few minutes later, he pulls Jesus aside in private and speaks in the flesh out of his own humanity and his own broken humanity. Now he's not infallible there. So papal infallibility doesn't mean that the Pope is just an oracle at everything he says, including what kind of ice cream he likes. You know, he likes <laughs> vanilla. It's then that's infallibly better than chocolate. No, it's that in mo- critical moments where, 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 um, doctrine is in, in doubt, he speaks, uh, from the spirit in the name of all the bishops, in the name of the church. But basically, that, that's what papal infallibility is. And I think most of the time, people have a real hard time with papal infallibility because they think of it as some blanket thing. It's just really what we see in Peter there, what we saw in Leo at the Council of Chalcedon. That papal infallibility really means. And the Pope doesn't engage his infallibility very often. However, there are there are secondary acts of infallibility, like the de- declaration of uh, the canonization is a is an infallible judgment that somebody is in heaven. 
And, you know, it's not you have to believe this or you're going to go to hell. But you can totally rely on the fact that uh, this woman, Edith Stein, was a saint and she is in heaven. She was a model while she lived on earth. She is in heaven. You can seek her intercession. It's not wrong to to dedicate a church to her. Okay, so we have no doubt she is there. So it's an infallible judgment, just like you know the judgment of what books are in the canon. That's an infallible judgment made by two ecumenical councils. Uh, you, you know, uh, you don't have to memorize the, the books, the names of the books. You're not going to get a quiz on that in heaven. But it's a judgment that here you can find. The, the, you know, the truth and inspired scripture. So anyway, my point is that in, infallibility is there implicitly in, you know, in the scriptures and in the fathers and Mary, you find a, a great emphasis on Mary as the new Eve. And you also find Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. You find this in the second century. You find it as early as Justin and Irenaeus. Um, so there's a reverence for Mary there's prayer to her asking for intercession in in the era of the fathers. Um, when someone denied the title Theotokos, mother of God or God bearer to Mary, it caused a, a big protest. The people, it was part of their heart and their life and their piety. They instantly rebelled against this. So the point I'm making here is, you know, what do you, when it comes down to the Immaculate Conception of Mary or the Assumption of Mary, which are two dogmatic definitions, those were generally believed by the fathers and taught by the fathers. Um, they weren't declared dogmas until the, the 20th century, the, yeah, the 19th and 20th century, but they were there. So Marian devotion's there. Um, you know, belief in her sinlessness is there. Belief that in her dormition, or she felt, you know, the, the early church from the second century we have testimony church believed that she fell asleep or died in Jerusalem and that her soul was taken to heaven and then her body uh, was assumed. Okay. Now that that's the earliest tradition we have. There are some in the West who think she didn't die. And the Pope said, I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm just going to say that she's, you can believe either way you want, <laughs> but, but she, but she definitely was assumed body and soul to heaven, uh, whether immediately before death or after death, it, that, that we're not, we're not going to decide on. So anyway, um, I'm just going to, I'm just saying that these things were there and I certainly understand especially Protestants who are not raised familiar with these and, you know, raised in a, in a tradition where there's not Marian devotion, they seem very abrupt and difficult. And, you know, where are they in scripture? Um, but anyway, the point I'm making here is that they were in fact, um, implicitly, uh, or regularly taught and believed in, you know, by the fathers. Well, doctors, this has been absolutely incredible. Before we sign off, where can people learn more about you or find some resources on you? Yeah, you can go to my website. And, you know, my name is long, Matt, Marcellino D'Ambrosio. So DrItaly.com is a lot easier to remember. I'm an Italian. <laughs> I'm a doctor of theology. So DrItaly.com is a way to get my website. It's called the Crossroads Initiative. Lots of excerpts of the fathers there. And I actually read some of them, so you can listen to them uh, as a podcast. Uh, but you can read their excerpts. You can read me writing about not only them, but just uh, on the scriptures, uh, reflections on the scriptures. You can sign up for our email. Every week you'll get a selection of great stuff to feed your faith. Um, and I lead pilgrimages to the Holy Land, to Italy, to walking in the footsteps of Jesus and the apostles in the Holy Land, walking in the footsteps of the saints in various places in Europe. 
Um, and we still have room for going to Italy in September. We still have room for going to the Holy Land next April. So yeah, find out about all that stuff on the website at dritaly.com. I would just say, if you do read When the Church Was Young, I would ask you, if you don't mind, um, if you believe it's worthy of a five-star rating, please give it that on Amazon. Um, you can rate it on our website, dritaly.com. We would love it if you write a short little review. And um, if you would um, read a few of the other reviews and, and like the ones that you find helpful on Amazon, that really helps us a lot. We, we want more, more and more people to see this book as a book that's worth reading because the fathers are worth reading. And so uh, your help in giving us a little review, send us the review, you know, send us. I uh, just, you, you can do that at drlee.com. Say, Hey, I just reviewed your book on Amazon. Here's what I said about it. Um, we would love that. Uh, that would help us a lot. Oh, well, thank you for that. And again, thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on here and sharing all of your expertise and wisdom with us. And listeners, if you enjoyed that, go check out his stuff, go purchase his book. And as always, join us next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs>